Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. House Democrats sprinting to defend their record on crime ahead of November 8th. A veteran campaign strategist weighs in on midterm crime ads. The bird is freed. That's what billionaire Elon Musk tweeted after closing the deal to buy Twitter. One of his first actions as owner was to fire top executives. Find out more about the $44 billion acquisition. Gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake has some criticism for the media and their coverage of a recent break-in at her opponent's campaign office. State government elections could have big consequences this year. We have an overview of the top 10 states where legislatures might flip. Race-based admissions to come to an end? The Supreme Court is set to hear a case that could dramatically alter college acceptance policies at universities. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband was violently attacked early this morning during a home invasion. A person broke into the Pelosi home in San Francisco and, quote, violently assaulted Paul Pelosi, who is 82. That's according to a statement from Nancy Pelosi's spokesman, Drew Hamill. Paul Pelosi was rushed to a hospital where he is being treated and was expected to make a full recovery. Nancy Pelosi was not in San Francisco at the time. She frequently spends time in Washington and other cities as part of her job. Hamill said the assailant was taken into custody and police are investigating the motivation for the crimes. The San Francisco Police Department did not immediately respond to a request for comment. San Francisco, like many U.S. cities, has been dealing with a spike in crime in recent years. With the midterms fast approaching, House Democrats are rushing to defend their record on crime. In the past week, almost a dozen candidates have launched ads trying to boost their positions on crime. And today's Jessica Beatty has more. At least 11 House Democrats have benefited from new ads highlighting their support for law enforcement. That's according to data from campaigns and political action committees. Veteran political consultant Susan Estrich explains why crime ads are significant. But where crime will always come in, and what some of these ads reflect, is as a character question. Is this candidate tough enough? Democrats' chances of keeping the House have slipped further in the last month. One reason, according to Democrat strategists, is an onslaught of Republican ads labeling their opponents as anti-police. Remains to be seen how much impact they have on the voters. But most of these ads get focus grouped. And what you find, or what I've found in the past, is that these scary ads do scare people. You know, I mean, they work. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi sent a letter to Democratic colleagues Thursday calling on them to defend their record on crime. Democrat Adam Gray, who's running in California, is one candidate trying to do this. In his ad, he features law enforcement officials defending his record. I'm Adam Gray, and I approve this message. It has him surrounded by police officials and has him endorsed by conservatives or people who look like conservatives or announce that they're conservatives but say we're for him anyway. And it puts Adam Gray squarely on the side of law enforcement. The focus on crime has increased as other issues like abortion have faded. In a Reuters Ipsos poll released Tuesday, respondents were twice as likely to list crime rather than abortion access as the country's biggest problem. Including law enforcement in ads like Gray's is a dramatic turn following the death of George Floyd. Estrich says this time last year, people weren't running ads surrounded by law enforcement officials. She says it shows how the tide has changed. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Accusations are flying in Arizona from candidates for governor. Republican nominee Carrie Lake is accusing journalists of trying to influence the election. She was responding to media coverage of a statement made by her opponent, Katie Hobbs. It was in connection to a break-in at Hobbs' campaign headquarters. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the details. She put out a defamatory statement, and you all ran with it. You didn't do your journalistic duty. It was malpractice of journalism like I've never seen before. And it was an effort, I believe, to influence this election. Many of you are an arm of the Democrat Party. Many of you are propagandists. 
and almost all of you should be ashamed. The Hobbs campaign statement on the break-in said that she and her staff have received hundreds of death threats over the course of the campaign, and that Carrie Lake and her allies have been spreading dangerous information and inciting threats against anyone they see fit. Meanwhile, a tweet by the Arizona Democratic Party tied Lake even closer to the break-in. It said, make no mistake, this is a direct result of Carrie Lake and fringe Republicans spreading lies and hate and inciting violence, and it is despicable. Lake says the media is trying to avoid reporting on what she calls the real story. Obviously, you don't want to cover the real story today, which we are 11 points up in the polls. The break-in occurred on Tuesday this week. Phoenix police arrested a suspect for the break-in and burglary yesterday. His name is Daniel Mota Dos Reis. Dos Reis had already been arrested on Wednesday for a separate burglary. Lake reacted to the arrest. Fox 10 News, my old employer, wow. They actually did more to protect the criminal in this case. They blurred his face. Hobbs was asked to react to news of the arrest. You have reason to believe that this was politically motivated. I'm not talking It's kind of a big deal, though, that your campaign office was broken into. I think access to safe and legal abortion is kind of a big deal, and that's what we're here to talk about. Do you have reason to believe it was... Dos Reis is facing an assault charge in addition to multiple criminal trespass charges. He identifies himself as an immigrant from Angola on his personal Facebook page. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was caught on a hot microphone when President Biden arrived in New York. Schumer specifically mentioned Georgia as a concern. Have a listen. Walker held a campaign event on Thursday. He was joined by Senator Ted Cruz. Cruz said he was there to support Walker and that he believes he will win. And in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman's debate performance Tuesday night concerns some Democrats. It's a race that could decide control of the Senate. Republican nominee Mehmet Oz has been gaining in the polls in recent weeks. President Biden and Vice President Harris are heading to Pennsylvania. It's a rare joint appearance to campaign on behalf of Senate hopeful John Fetterman. Fetterman had a stroke five months ago, and a rocky debate performance has caused concern among Democrats. He appeared on stage Tuesday with Republican candidate Mehmet Oz. The impact of the stroke was apparent as Fetterman used closed captioning to help him process the words he heard. This led to occasional awkward pauses. Some Democrat leaders think his appearance at the debate may have been a mistake, especially during the crucial closing days of the contest. Biden and Harris are scheduled to attend a Democratic Party dinner while there. Fetterman and other candidates will be in attendance, and Fetterman is expected to speak. The joint appearance by Biden and Harris shows how much is at stake in the race. The Pennsylvania contest will help decide which party controls the Senate. President Biden's chief of staff violated a key law keeping White House officials from engaging in political activity. The Hatch Act bans government officials from using their jobs to influence elections. Back in May, White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain retweeted on his official Twitter account a post that included a message to buy political merchandise for a Democratic group. A conservative watchdog filed a complaint to the Office of Special Counsel. The OSC concluded the retweet did violate the law, but said in a memo, Klain will not face any disciplinary action. He has been warned to be more careful in the future and has since removed the retweet. The White House press secretary noted that many Trump administration officials violated the Hatch Act during his presidency. A Nevada county's hand count of mail-in ballots is now on pause. The state Supreme Court ruled the process was illegal after previously giving it the green light. Nye County began counting mail-in ballots on Wednesday after the state Supreme Court last week ruled that it be conducted in a way that prevents the public release of early results. Some 60 volunteers began the unprecedented hand count process. Teams of five people were split up and placed in separate rooms to count batches of ballots by hand. One volunteer read the results from each ballot out loud while a verifier watched. Then another marked down the tally on sheets of paper. 
After the volunteers wrapped up the second day of hand-counting the ballots, the Supreme Court issued a three-page opinion clarifying the previous order and so stopping the count. While midterm races for Congress and governor are getting a lot of attention, state House and Senate elections have also big consequences. Here are some of the states where the legislature might flip. According to the National Conference of State Legislatures, or NCSL, control of 12 state senates and nine state houses are up for grabs this in November's midterm elections. Ballotpedia identified 16 battleground state senates and 12 battleground state houses in 19 states. In Alaska, Democrats currently control the House under a coalition, but it could flip this year. In Arizona, Republicans have a 16 to 14 majority in the Senate and a 31 to 29 advantage in the House. Ballotpedia identified seven competitive races in the Senate and another seven in the House. In Michigan, the Republican Party has a 22 to 16 majority in the Senate and a 56 to 53 advantage in the House. Ballotpedia rates 10 Senate races and 26 House races as competitive. In Minnesota, Republicans have a 34 to 31 majority in the Senate, while Democrats control the House 69 to 64. 27 Senate races and 42 House races are expected to be competitive. In Pennsylvania, Republicans have a 28 to 21 majority in the Senate and a 113 to 89 advantage in the House. Nine Senate races and 34 House races are expected to be competitive. In New Hampshire, Republicans currently control both chambers, 13 to 10 in the Senate and 206 to 182 in the House. Both the NCSL and Ballopedia say the Senate, which has eight battleground races, could potentially flip. In Washington state, Democrats have a 28 to 21 majority in the Senate and a 57 to 41 majority in the House. The NCSL and Ballopedia identify the Senate as competitive with five battleground races. In Oregon, Democrats have a 18 to 11 advantage in the Senate and the House is split evenly, 30 to 30. See analysis, a state legislature analytics site, projects that Republicans could gain up to two Senate seats and up to four House seats. In Nevada, Democrats control the Senate 11 to 9 and the House 26 to 16. Ballopedia says both chambers are competitive, with four Senate battlegrounds and 16 House battlegrounds. And lastly, in Maine, Democrats control the Senate 22 to 13 and the House 76 to 63. Ballopedia says 20 Senate seats and 53 House seats are battlegrounds. An update on the Michigan election software company accused of storing poll worker data in China. The head of the company is trying to dismiss the case, arguing the alleged conduct, even if true, is not criminal. Connect founder and chief executive Eugene Yu is accused of violating the company's contract with Los Angeles County. The contract says election workers' personal information can only be shared with citizens and permanent residents of the U.S. He was charged with grand theft by embezzlement and conspiracy to commit a crime. He was arrested earlier this month. Some organizations focused on voter fraud saw it as a vindication of their warnings about the vulnerability of U.S. election systems, including to hacking by overseas adversaries. Use lawyers argue that the complaint should be dismissed and are calling the issue a run-of-the-mill contract dispute that shouldn't have criminal penalties. Iowa has long enjoyed its status as the nation's first presidential nominating contest, but national opinion has shifted, especially within the Democratic Party, and a Des Moines Register poll shows a majority of Iowans support the tradition, but a growing number are reconsidering it. According to the poll, 53% of Iowans think the country is better off if Iowa retains its first-in-nation status. 26% think a different state or group of states should go first. That's up from just 13% in 2015. Another 21% are not sure. The Democratic National Committee is weighing whether to keep the Iowa caucuses as the first nominating contest. It will decide after the November midterms. National Republicans appear committed to staying in Iowa for the first contest. The bird is freed. That's the tweet Elon Musk made after becoming the owner of Twitter yesterday. Musk's first move was firing top executives, and it seems no one's position in the company is safe, as Musk says he plans to cut jobs. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the acquisition. Before closing the $44 billion acquisition, Elon Musk changed his Twitter profile description to Chief Twit. Musk said Thursday after the deal went through that he did not buy the company to make more money, but to try and help humanity, which he loves. He wants to build a super app. He wants to add payments. He wants to do more video. He maybe wants to make it like a protocol. He wants to verify users. I mean, he wants to do all these big things. At the same time, he wants to cut 75% of all the people that currently work there. 
One of his first actions was to fire CEO Parag Agarwal, CFO Ned Siegel, and the company's general counsel. That's according to people familiar with the matter, who spoke on the condition of anonymity due to the sensitive nature of the personnel moves. Musk accused them of misleading him and Twitter investors over the number of fake accounts on the platform. The anonymous sources say Agarwal and Siegel were escorted out of Twitter's San Francisco headquarters when the deal closed. Musk has talked about the importance of free speech, and it's widely assumed he will make fewer limits on content that can be posted. The billionaire entrepreneur says he wants to prevent the platform from becoming an echo chamber for hate and division. I think there is a chance that, that one of the first things he'd like to do is bring back everybody that was banned or bring back everybody that was controversial. Certainly that's part of his MO. That's not to say there will be no moderation moving forward. Musk said in an open letter to advertisers on Thursday that Twitter obviously cannot become a free-for-all hellscape where anything can be said with no consequences. Goals he's outlined include wanting to defeat spam bots on the platform and be transparent about the algorithms that determine how content is presented to users. Twitter shares were up Thursday, ending the day just under the price Musk paid. The stock will be delisted from the New York Stock Exchange Friday. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, Brazilians are set to vote for their president this weekend. This year's elections are the most tense in decades. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. A showdown is on the horizon over race-based admissions. This as the Supreme Court prepares to hear arguments in Students for Fair Admissions versus President and Fellows of Harvard College. And today's Daniel Monahan has more. The court is scheduled to hear arguments in the case on October 31st, and the future of racial quotas in university admissions will depend largely on its outcome. It's one of the most hotly disputed and closely watched cases of the Supreme Court's new term. The core of the case is the use of race-based admissions policies at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. The lawsuit seeks to overturn the 2003 ruling in Grutter versus Bollinger. That decision permits universities to consider race and admissions decisions with the aim of improving diversity. The case at hand argues that those discriminatory policies unfairly disadvantage Asian American applicants at Harvard and both Asian and white applications in the case of UNC. The lawsuit also states that those policies are in violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In January, the court consolidated the two actions into a single lawsuit, but then split them up again in order to allow new Justice Kantanji Brown Jackson to participate in the UNC case. She recused herself from the Harvard case as she served on the Harvard Board of Overseers. Harvard says the allegations from Students for Fair Admissions are dangerously misleading and that they distort data to reach preconceived and wrong conclusions. The lawsuit targeting Harvard relies heavily on data compiled by Duke University economics professor Peter Arcidiancono. He argued that Harvard's policies were most favorable to African-American applicants. This was followed by Hispanics and then by whites, and that Asian applicants were the worst off. Arcidi Ancono described the case of a hypothetical Asian male applicant whose scholastic achievements and qualifications afforded him a 25% chance of admission. That same applicant would have a 36% chance of admission if he were white, a 77% chance if Hispanic, and a 95% chance if black. The founder of Students for Fair Admissions says that if the lawsuit has its intended result, it will strike down racial quotas at Harvard and UNC, and that it will set a precedent that will ultimately signal the end of race-based admissions policies at colleges and universities throughout the country. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Demand for U.S. Series 1 saving bonds exploded this week, briefly causing the Treasury website to crash. That means some requests from investors might not be processed and locked into the bond's historically high 9.62 rate before Friday's deadline. Users were alerted about that by Treasury.gov Thursday, where a statement said they were dealing with unprecedented requests. Analysts say demand has gone up so greatly because the I-bond is protected from inflation and it offers a safe return. People who invest in I-bonds can't cash it out for at least a year, and it takes five years to get the total amount of interest. 
Kanye West is back on Instagram after a lockout. He said in a post that he lost $2 billion in a single day after Adidas cut ties with him. Forbes said the rapper dropped off its billionaire list and is now worth around $400 million. West's post was addressed to Ari Emanuel, the CEO of Endeavor. Emanuel wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times calling for corporations to cut ties with West, and a number of companies have done so. The fallout came after West made a string of controversial comments on social media, with some alleged to be anti-Semitic. West has repeatedly denied charges of racism or anti-Semitism. The U.S. Navy, Coast Guard, and Rhode Island officials detonated a World War II-era explosive device found by a fishing vessel. The fishing crew reported the device to the Coast Guard Tuesday when they found it in their hull off the coast of Rhode Island. The three crew members dropped anchor and were evacuated back to shore. The Navy and the Rhode Island bomb squad helped the Coast Guard set up a one-mile safety zone around the vessel. On Wednesday, they put the explosive back into the water using the fishing vessel's crane. It was detonated one mile west of where the ship docked. A Navy spokesperson says the explosive came from a battle in which the Navy sank a German U-boat. The Navy says there could be more in the area. Officials in Hawaii are warning residents on the Big Island the world's largest active volcano may erupt given a recent spike in earthquakes. In the last three weeks or so, we had a increase in seismicity, up to over 100 events per day. And that then translated into us getting a little bit more concerned. The Hawaiian Volcano Observatory said the summit of Mauna Loa has been in a state of heightened unrest since the middle of last month. That's when the number of summit earthquakes jumped from 10 to 20 per day to 40 to 50 per day. The earthquakes could continue for a while before any eruption, and they may dissipate with no eruption at all. But while scientists don't expect the volcano to erupt imminently, officials are reminding people that lava could reach some homes in just a few hours if and when it does erupt. During an eruption in 1950, the lava flow traveled 15 miles to the ocean in less than three hours. Mauna Loa has erupted 33 times since 1843. It last erupted in 1984. The Mexican Navy busted more than one ton of drugs in a recent maritime raid. Military aerial footage captured the high-speed chase off the southwest coast. One video shows a drug trafficking boat being chased at sea. Several occupants dumped the cargo overboard and escaped. Military helicopters then retrieved the drug parcels floating in the sea. Footage from the next day shows a vessel carrying fuel containers. Three members on board were detained for failing to prove their legal origin. They were later handed over to the public prosecutor's office. The two operations unfolded near the coastal area of Oaxaca in southwest Mexico. Authorities said in a statement that over a ton of cocaine and 18 fuel tanks were seized. Brazil is approaching election day and the country is divided. Both sides think the other party is a danger to the country. This year's presidential race is believed to be the country's most fraught election since the end of military rule decades ago. Brazil is one of the only countries in South America that's being governed by a right-leaning head of state as the continent is experiencing a strong left-leaning wave across multiple nations in recent years. Incumbent President Jair Bolsonaro is trying to keep it that way, but left-leaning candidate and former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, better known as Lula, is leading the polls. Lula apparently has a lead of around five percentage points, according to multiple polls. However, Brazil's polls were proving to be inaccurate in the first round of presidential elections a month ago. They showed a two-digit lead for Lula, but the results turned out to be much closer than that. Speaking in Rio de Janeiro on Thursday, Bolsonaro showed confidence he'll win the election, despite current predictions. I'm sure on Sunday we'll have a landslide victory at the polls. I want each of you to get at least one more vote for us to make sure Brazil will remain in good hands. To all of you in Rio de Janeiro, thank you very much. However, one analyst points out that Lula's lead increased by one percentage point recently. Lula maintained his position in the last poll, and in that sense, he is preferred by 49% of voters, while Bolsonaro has 44%. In other words, Bolsonaro lost one percentage point, and in this sense, is no longer considered a technical tie. Many Lula supporters consider Bolsonaro a threat to democracy, while the other side often thinks that Lula will impose socialism and turn Brazil into the next Venezuela.
I vote for Lula because we can't stand Bolsonaro anymore. There's nothing we can expect from Bolsonaro. He's a skeptic and anti-democratic. I will vote for Bolsonaro because I want to keep my freedom. I want freedom for my daughters and the freedom to come and go as I please. Some voters worry not only about inaccurate polls, but about the election process as well. Bolsonaro and many of his supporters allege there are indications that the process is rigged. After the first round of elections a month ago, the White House said Brazil's election was fair with no indication of any wrongdoing. The runoff elections are taking place on Sunday. In a dramatic move, Colombian police blew up seven illegal gold mining shafts in Amazonas. These illegal activities are threatening the ecosystem of the Amazon River Basin. Drone footage recorded the huge black cloud from the explosion. According to the Colombian National Police, these rafts came from neighboring Brazil. Their entry was confirmed by satellite monitoring and photos from the Colombian National Air Force. The illegal diggers have caused major mercury pollution in the tributaries of the Amazon, damaging both the ecosystem and its inhabitants. A study found that 80% of the carnivorous fish in the Amazon had detectable levels of mercury. Mercury is used in the purification of gold, accounting for about 70% of all mercury emissions each year. And still to come, the Dutch government is investigating an overseas Chinese Communist Party police station. A Chinese dissident in the Netherlands says the station already contacted him. And the Japanese yen is down to levels not seen in three decades. That's good news for tourists, but bad news for residents. Get the details in just a minute here on NTD News. Good to have you back with us. China has been accused of using overseas bases to target dissidents. The Netherlands is now investigating offices that have been operating in the country on behalf of the Chinese regime. One Chinese dissident living in the country said representatives from one office sought to pressure him to return to China. What looks like a regular house in a residential street in Rotterdam, Netherlands, could in fact be a secret overseas Chinese police station on Dutch soil. The Dutch government said this week it's investigating whether the Chinese Communist Party has set up two such offices in the country. It follows a report by Spanish-based NGO Safeguarded Defenders that found that the Chinese regime has established dozens of such stations around the world. The point of such underground centers was for China's Communist Party to stifle criticism within expatriate communities. The Dutch Foreign Ministry said the Chinese regime never informed them about the offices which makes them illegal. Information about the outposts underscored concerns about how the Chinese Communist Party undermines democratic institutions and rule of law abroad. Wang Jingyu is a Chinese dissident living in the Netherlands. He said representatives from the office had sought to pressure him to return to China as part of a wider harassment campaign. A few months ago, a Dutch lumber called me. He said he's from Rotterdam and uh, he's from Chinese Overseas Police Service, like this. And he wanted you to come? Yeah, he wanted me to come and uh, he wanted to talk to me. Willemijn Ertz is a researcher at the Institute of Security and Global Affairs in Leiden. There is a Vienna Treaty on Diplomatic Relations which says that only if you have permission from your host country, you're allowed to engage in certain activities. She said operating such offices without permission in a host country amounted to unwanted foreign interference. China's foreign ministry on Thursday rejected any suggestion of illegal activity. Scotland's first minister said the Scottish government and the police are taking reports of such secret Chinese outposts in Glasgow extremely seriously. Speaking during first minister's questions, Nicola Sturgeon said she has discussed it with Chief Constable of Police Scotland, Sir Ian Livingston. Sturgeon added, any foreign country operating in Scotland must abide by Scottish law. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Thursday. This was during the U.S. and Canada's bilateral talks held in Ottawa. And uh, in the coming weeks, we'll be uh, seeing each other quite a bit over in Asia as we uh, uh, deepen uh, the work that we're doing as fellow Pacific nations uh, in the Indo-Pacific as we meet at the G20, at the the APEX summit and various other summits where uh, Canada and the United States continue to work side by side. In the Indo-Pacific. 
uh, in the Arctic. We're both Indo-Pacific countries. Uh, we're both Arctic countries. Uh, we spent some time talking about that because uh, so much of the future in different ways will be written in those places. Among the leading topics that U.S. and Canadian officials are discussing are the war in Ukraine, protests in Iran, chaos in Haiti, as well as security in the Indo-Pacific and the Arctic region. Justin Trudeau said the two nations continue to stand with Ukraine against Russia. On the protests in Iran, he said the U.S. and Canada are standing together. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the two countries will continue to work together to address challenges not only in this hemisphere, but also around the world, such as in Europe, the Indo-Pacific, and the Arctic. Concerns are growing about the U.S. weakening its military deterrent posture in terms of nuclear weapons and conventional warfare. This comes as the Air Force is pulling permanent F-15 squadrons from Okinawa and replacing them with rotational fighters, and the Pentagon makes changes to its nuclear arsenal. An expert breaks this down for us. Joining us now is Bradley Thayer, the director of China Policy at the Center for Security Policy. He's also the co-author of America's Achilles Heel, Nuclear, Biological, and Chemical Terrorism and Covert Attack. Pleasure speaking with you, Bradley. Thank you. It's wonderful to join you today. Thank you for the opportunity. The Pentagon says the United States will stop developing nuclear-armed sea-launched cruise missiles. This includes retiring the most destructive nuclear bomb in the U.S. arsenal and canceling the missile program. Why are they doing it, and why now? Well, it it's, uh, remains to be seen, I think, fully why they're doing it. It is a time of particular danger for the United States when we face Russian aggression in Ukraine and we face a belligerent China under Xi Jinping simply as he came off of the 20th Party Congress emboldened and with direct threats against Taiwan as well as against the United States. So it's a question now, why is the Biden administration announcing these uh, steps in important policy documents, the National Defense Strategy, the Nuclear Posture Review, and the Missile Defense uh, Strategy, which they've just released. So it leaves I think a lot of folks in the strategic community scratching their heads in terms of why they're taking this, these steps uh, to remove these arrows from our quiver at a time of increasing belligerence, because that does not augur well for deterrence of China or of Russia. Yes, and I would like to talk about these deterrents. And I see what you mean about now is a time to show strength. First, I want to ask, does Congress have to approve this decision? And if so, do you think they will support it? Well, the administration can execute this without Congress, but Congress does, of course, have a role to play uh, in terms of oversight and in terms of budget. Uh, so if there is a Republican House and Senate, I would expect that these decisions come under significant pressure to be reversed. Uh, whether the administration and Congress can agree to that is another issue, but I think that there will be a fight uh, over uh, these issues, a slicker man and uh, the B-83 retirement. And going back to deterrence, this gravity bomb is very powerful. Now, would it be that it's not useful in tactical strikes, or is there another reason for this? Well, it wouldn't be useful in tactical strikes because of its yield. That is, it's a very, in a tactical strike, you'd want a smaller yield weapon. Uh, and this is multi-megaton. It's designed to go after deeply buried targets. That's one of the um, uh, reasons why it's in the arsenal. For example, Russian command and control centers or conceivably Chinese uh, centers uh, as well. Those are targets that you would want to hold uh, at risk um, if you're seeking to deter Russia or China. So to remove it um, without any replacements um, is uh, seen as uh, a damaging for deterrence because deterrence operates, after all, on really two variables. First, political calculations, your commitment, your willpower, your willingness to run risks. Uh, and secondly, your military capabilities. And I want to zoom in on China here. Also in the strategy documents released Thursday, the Pentagon emphasized its focus on China as the so-called pacing threat. So the rhetoric uh, seems to be good, uh, but the actions that the, at the same time, the actions they're taking undermine the rhetoric. If China is, as they identify it, a pacing threat, uh, then the United States should be doing everything that it can uh, to meet it in conjunction with the, the fact that it faces the Russian threat at the same time. In fact, as that document belies, 
the administration is weakening uh, the United States. So rhetoric uh, seems to be on the right track, but recommendations are on the wrong track. So great to have your analysis. Bradley Thayer, Center for Security Policy, so great to have you on the show today. Uh, thank you very much indeed. The value of Japan's currency, the yen, is down to levels that were last seen 32 years ago. This is good for visiting tourists, but it means higher-priced imports, which is bad news for Japan's wine drinkers. Here's more. For Japan's wine connoisseurs, it's not just grapes that are feeling the squeeze. Rising prices and a weak yen mean it is becoming tougher to enjoy an after-work tipple. The yen is at a 32-year low against the U.S. dollar. And the government reported that core consumer inflation hit 3% in September, an eight-year high. Susie Iwamoto owns a bar and wine shop. She says she has had to raise her prices by up to 50% in recent months. Unfortunately, I have to pass some of the burden on to my customers, which as a shop owner is really painful. Researchers say the price of some 20,000 food and drink items in Japan have gone up this year, in particular on imported items. Hitting wine drinkers hard as Japan imports about 70% of the wine consumed in the country. It's not just wine. In general, everything's going up. The price of things that I like, imported items especially, are all going up. It's tough, but I keep buying them. I'll cut back on other things. I don't want to cut back on booze, though. If it continues to go up, I'll drink a smaller amount of wine and have fewer chances to drink it. So it's pretty tough. The dollar's surge against the yen has continued. That's despite Japan spending up to a record $19.7 billion, intervening in the foreign exchange market in September to support its currency. And the spending looks set to continue. Tokyo is set to compile an economic package of measures by the end of this month to ease the pain of surging prices. But this has raised concerns that another round of heavy spending could further add strain to Japan's public finances. Consumer prices in Japan's capital rose 3.4% in October from a year earlier. That's a leading indicator of nationwide trends and marks the fastest pace of annual inflation since 1989. The data come as the Bank of Japan meets for a two-day policy meeting. It's expected to revise up its inflation forecasts, but keep stimulating the economy to support a fragile economic recovery. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, with the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, Germany decides to hold on to its Cold War-era bunkers. And the nation is planning a siren testing day in December. We'll have more shortly here on NTD News Today. The European Union struck a deal yesterday to pretty much ban the sale of new gas and diesel cars from 2035. The goal is to speed up the switch to electric vehicles to combat climate change. Carmakers must now achieve a 100% cut in CO2 emissions by 2035. That would make it impossible to sell new fossil fueled power vehicles in the 27-country bloc. The EU climate policy chief said the agreement sent a strong signal to industry and consumers. Meanwhile, Volkswagen said this week that from 2033, the brand will only produce electric cars in Europe. The European Car Industry Association warned against banning a specific technology. It called for internal combustion engines and hydrogen vehicles to play a role in the low-carbon transition. Lithuania is staging its largest ever military training maneuvers alongside NATO allies. The two-week Iron Wolf exercise lasts until Sunday and involves more than 3,500 troops from the Lithuanian Army and eight other NATO countries. Belgian and Lithuanian military vehicles, along with German tanks, took part in the war games. The Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania have been calling for their region to receive a buildup of NATO forces. This after Russia invaded Ukraine in February. But NATO countries were not willing to commit to permanent bases in the Baltics as it would cost billions of dollars and would be hard to sustain. 
The states may not have enough troops and weaponry, and a permanent presence would be highly provocative for Moscow. Instead, NATO chose to assign thousands of troops on standby in countries further west, like Germany, as rapid reinforcements. Germany is holding on to public nuclear fallout shelters in light of the war in Ukraine. Just around 600 of the original 2,000 remain. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the country's nuclear anxieties. Robert Schweinbacher is standing in a decommissioned Cold War-era nuclear bunker in Germany. The small space now serves as a museum. The whole thing is popularly called a nuclear fallout shelter, but strictly speaking, it is a civil defense facility. And the big difference between a bunker and a civil defense facility is that a bunker can possibly take a direct hit. This facility absolutely cannot. It is only for the aftermath of a nuclear strike to survive here for 14 days with food, with drinking water, with filtered air. Schweinbacher explains how the facility works and details how food and water would function in case of a nuclear attack. These ration packs that have been given out here should only be consumed cold. And the cooking facilities that we see over here are only for two exceptions. One is for baby food and the other is for tea and the like for the hospital ward. Everything else should only be dispensed cold at this valve here. And only here in the kitchen can you draw drinking water at all. That means the entire supply is done through this valve. Even though the Cold War ended decades ago, Germans are concerned. The Ukraine border is less than a nine-hour drive from the German capital, Berlin. And the war feels uncomfortably close for many here. Towns near U.S. military bases are particularly on edge. In the western states of Germany, people express more of a need to protect themselves against a nuclear attack. And in the eastern regions, it's really more conventional war. In other words, I'll put it bluntly, people think the Russians are standing at the door and that's exactly what I want to protect myself from. In recent months, Russian President Vladimir Putin has escalated the war. He's called up reservists and is threatening to use nuclear weapons. Double-digit inflation and concerns about energy shortages have only heightened anxiety in Germany. On December 8th, Germany plans to test its countrywide warning system with sirens and text messages. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, the Smart Country Convention was held in Berlin to scale up a future of smart living and networked city life. And destructive pet fishing practices prove difficult to prevent, even when outlawed. Many fear that delicate marine ecosystems are being damaged. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Welcome back. The Smart Country Convention in Berlin lays out a blueprint for future countries and cities. Here, a highly connected, more efficient world is achievable. Wind turbines towering high, trains arriving on time. A highlight exhibit at this year's Smart Country Convention. This Lego city is a miniature of more efficient urban living. It was built by Fiware, an open source platform dedicated to smart solutions for the future. Now, every single seconds we generate data, massive data, but we don't uh, use data in a proper way. So in the future, if we have some clever platform and we put our real-time data into the platform and we can use some like AI algorithm to uh, decide what should we do for next steps by using this platform and by using our real-time data and the historic data it, w it would be very fantastic. German company Einstadt, or One City, is presenting its near-field communication chip system. These round badges can be attached anywhere, like playgrounds, benches, and trees. Users don't have to scroll around in the app anymore, but they have to touch the chip, and straight away, the form opens for the tree or the playground toy, for example. On top of that, citizens can play a role themselves in reporting faulty equipment. They can touch the button with their private smartphone and, for example, report a faulty streetlight. 
The company has already run a pilot project in a small town and is hoping to expand to other cities soon. Across the showroom, Stuttgart-based Violytics is showcasing a system for analyzing roads. A camera is attached to a car, and when it drives around a city, the camera takes photos of the roads. Every four meters, a photo is taken, and this part of the street is analyzed for damage, potholes, cracks. They get noticed and described. And then entire road networks can be analyzed and a plan for repairs can be made. Other exhibitors include startup Urban Energy and their Zero-C system, which allows companies to quickly calculate their carbon footprint. Smart Country Convention is Europe's leading congress for e-government, the digitalization of local governments and cities. Millions of saltwater fish are caught in Indonesia and other countries every year to fill aquariums around the world. Some fear that delicate marine ecosystems are being damaged. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. The pet fishing trade is difficult to regulate with murky rules on how fish go from ocean to tank. Fisherman Made Pardiana is careful to fish responsibly. The sea is big and has open access. So we can use it as long as we don't use cyanide. We respect nature and we catch fish with nets, which are environmentally friendly. Even so, delicate coral ecosystems are degrading. Experts say the global demand for these fish is partly to blame, but the trade is difficult to regulate and track. It stretches from small-scale fishermen through middlemen, export warehouses, and international trade hubs. It, it takes a tremendous amount of knowledge to be able to catch fish and move fish through the supply chain safely. So people often just don't know where their fish come from or the fishermen that are involved in catching their fish. The fish ultimately end up at pet stores in the U.S., China, Europe, and elsewhere. Most of the fish coming into the U.S. are legally acquired, but there is a proportion of fish that come into the United States, and we don't know what that proportion is, uh, that are certainly illegal. And they're intermixed together. For decades, a common fishing technique has involved cyanide. Fishermen squirt a poisonous mixture onto coral reefs, where fish usually hide. The fish become temporarily stunned, allowing them to be picked from the coral, but many die in transit. The chemicals also damage the living coral and make it difficult for new coral to grow. The fish is caught with cyanide or in an area that's prohibited, then, uh, then the fish would be illegal. But it's not possible for, for the consumer to really know which fish is which because they don't have a tag like your clothes have on them that tell you where they come from. Cyanide fishing has been banned in countries such as Indonesia and the Philippines, but it's difficult to enforce, and experts say the practice continues. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. What's not to miss on Halloween beyond trick-or-treat? A pumpkin feast, one that even the animals would love. In a Belgian zoo, the celebration has begun. Video from the zoo shows a family of chimpanzees happily sharing a carved pumpkin. In another enclosure, rhinos hoist the pumpkins with their horns and enjoy the delicacy. Lions are also drawn to the meat inside. Elephants are seen trampling the squash to release the food, while meerkats and otters have to stick their heads into the pumpkins to get it. Other animals get into the Halloween spirit by playing with candy-filled pumpkins. According to zoo officials, the annual event helps stimulate the animal's senses with smells, tastes, and textures. And still to come, the Houston Astros and the Philadelphia Phillies prepare to face each other in the World Series. Find out who's more confident after the break. Game one of the 118th World Series in Houston. The powerhouse Astros are heavy favorites to capture their second championship in six years. Standing in their way is a red-hot Philadelphia team. I mean, this team is, is pretty calm and confident, and uh, it really helps to have Verlander pitching number one and then uh, Lance back, you know, starts with pitching. And uh, to have Lance and Verlander and to have um, the other young guys one year more mature uh, and confident, uh, and it's a good feeling. We've uh, obviously been one of the best franchises in the history of the game. Um, you know, since this run we've been on. I can't control the results that happen, and the only thing I can control is my body on the mound and my emotions and, um, you know, where that pitch is going. So uh, that's kind of how I keep my focus in line and my emotions in check. 
the defending American League champion Astros capped their 106-win season by sweeping both the Seattle Mariners and the New York Yankees and could become the first team to go undefeated in the postseason since the wildcard era began in 1995. But there is something special happening with the Phillies. They just won 87 games during the regular season and entered the playoffs as the National League's sixth seed. They then beat the Cardinals in the wild card, the Braves in the divisional series, and the Padres for the National League pennant. It's their first World Series since 2009. As we age, we naturally slow down, but does that mean it's okay to be immobile? Here's Gina Marie who brings us Strong Mind and Body. regular walking routine can help you to live longer. New research suggests that walking for 10 minutes per day can extend your life. But as people get older, they're less likely to meet activity requirements. It might be due to time, injury, or even energy levels. However, it seems like a little walking may help remedy all of those issues. Previous research showed that activity can boost energy and help relieve joint pain. The new research suggests that walking can also give people more time. A study was conducted in South Korea. It examined the link between walking and death risks from various causes among 7,000 people. They were aged 85 and older. During the five-year study period, it found that those who walked for at least one hour per week had a 40% lower risk of all-cause death. They also had a 39% lower risk of death related to heart problems. The link existed whether the participants performed moderate or vigorous activity. Leisure strolls through the park were linked with benefits. The US government suggests that all adults get 150 minutes of moderate or 75 minutes of vigorous activity per week. However, this new research shows that even an hour of light activity can yield results for adults in their 80s and beyond. If you are in your 80s and want to live longer and better, try including a short 10-minute walk into your daily routine. If you go longer, that's great. But about an hour per week divided between days will be more than enough to gain significant benefits. Scientists have found watching birds or listening to bird songs may boost mental well-being. They hope to demonstrate the importance of protecting the environment. The findings, published in the journal Scientific Reports, come from participants from around the world, including those who have been diagnosed with depression. 1,000 volunteers were asked to record whether they could see or hear birds, followed by questions on mental well-being. Researchers found that among those diagnosed with mental health conditions, hearing or seeing bird life was associated with improvements in mental well-being. A similar effect was also seen in healthy people, with improvements lasting for up to eight hours. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. 